I have two two very interesting guests today, and I'm sure they're going to give us lots of irresistible advice and information. And first of all, I'd like to introduce Bernie Michael, who is a serial entrepreneur. And despite that, he's still interesting, even though he is a lawyer as well. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. And the other guest that we have, who is a startup and a, a very successful startup, um, and we're going to hear about his journey, which has and is in a really good place, but it's really not been easy all along the road. And his name is Adelan Paul. Hey, Larry. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm just holding my breath because I find yep. it very hard to read your name. Where does your name originate from? Um, I was born and raised in Iran. Oh, so nice. my first name is the Farsi way of saying it is Ardalan. And the last name is Khosropur. It's a khe sound. Oh, sorry. But it doesn't sorry, translate sorry. in oh, right. English. I'll stick to Ardalan and then, you know, that. We so it is great to, today. And we're going to hear about your journey as a... Um, as an entrepreneur, what what I'd like to do, I always like you to introduce yourself, and I'd like you to share your story with our with our audience today. So. Sure, absolutely. Uh, my name is Ardalan Kostropur. I'm the CEO and one of the founders at Onsite IQ. We are a construction intelligence platform that helps real estate developers, private equity funds, and lenders oversee their projects across the country. We built a network of 1099s in the United States and North America. Can you say, don't say 1099s because we have an international audience and the Americans uh, will understand yeah. it. Yeah, this is a... Uh, so our business started when gig economy was taking off. Uber, Lyft, all the gig yeah. work. So we leveraged that structure and the fact that people want to do gigs. Yeah. And we built a network of gig workers right. across the country. They use high-resolution 360-degree cameras, go to these construction sites mm-hmm. on a weekly, bi-weekly, or monthly basis. They walk and record a 100% of that job site. That video gets submitted to our platform. Our computer vision engine, which is one of the proprietary pieces of our software, maps that walk through to the floor plan, very much like Google Street View. So now you have 20 projects. You come into the office Monday morning. You're sitting in New York. You can see 20 projects all across uh, the country instantly. Then we get that walkthrough or Google Street View imagery. We analyze it and we tell them how much progress was made. Week right. over week. Yeah. That's so that's now brilliant. that's absolutely brilliant. instantly when you're looking at 20 projects, yeah. you can see which ones potentially will be troubled and you can see the trends of it falling behind schedule. Hence, at the end of the day, it all ends with money. So, so finish on how did this come to be? Did you wake up in the middle of the night <laughs> and you just sort of said, you know, People just don't know what's going on in their buildings, and and I think it's that you know just doing your own home is the stuff. Yeah, I you know was there a light through a window and an angel you know waking you up saying, "Come on, you know let, let's help the world." How did it get there? Um, I wish I was I was smart enough to come up with all of this from the get go six years ago when we. We're thinking about when, when I was thinking, when, when I was doing customer discovery, the principle that led to starting a company was very basic. 
you have CCTV cameras in every single finished asset or building. 50, 70 years ago, you didn't. Today, we have. Right. Uh, you can't do the same thing for construction inside because it's dynamic. It's moving. You have to move the cameras. It becomes a logistical nightmare. So what do people do? They do walkthroughs. And the idea was very simple. What if you walk through and you record as you're walking through? And that's your alternative. But who to have thought of that idea? Um, the idea, quite frankly, already existed with a photography businesses. So there are photographers who would go around and take pictures for you. Right. And you pay them $500, $900 every time they show up. Right. But it's very labor intensive. And then let's say you're taking pictures of a five-story building, 30, 40 units. You don't know what which picture belongs to what location. What we did was turn the whole process to as simple as here's a backpack, walk and record video. We built a software that just maps everything. You don't even right. care where you're going. So, so that's fascinating. But who got the idea to do that? Where did that come from? Was it you or what? So the idea, yes. The, again, the photography business has existed. I just came up with the idea of improving it significantly. Which is probably what, what, what all, I mean, Uber, as I say, you know. Yeah, Arlen, all, you're being, you're being modest, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, uh, taxis yeah. existed before yeah. Uber, but somebody came up with the idea of Uber. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, true. Do you go to networking events? Uh, we have to. Yes. You have to. <laughs> so can you help people understand why a startup has to go to these events? Uh, and how do you find the events? Yeah, so if you think about the real estate industry for us, depending on the asset class, it could be multifamily, it could be hospitality, it could be commercial, depending on the asset class or a series of conferences like um, ULI or um, you have IMN. There are different, very specific conferences that we go to. And the idea is... You can maximize the amount of exposure you get as a smart, small company at a venue, like a conference. Everyone will see the logo. Uh, most decision makers are already there. So if you prep ahead of time, and this is something I've learned, you can maximize the return that you get out of that. So pre sorry, prep ahead of time? Yes. Advice on prepping ahead of a time? Yeah. So let's say you're going to a conference with... 10,000 attendees and you know who you want to meet at least a couple months ahead of time we reach out to them we try to get the meetings so it's not a when you go to the conference not a crapshoot I have a list of people that I wanted to meet with and I could already schedule a meeting with them or for a coffee for a drink over lunch over yeah, dinner yeah. Uh, ahead of time so when I show up, it's it's still a cold relationship, but I'm not going harassing people right. to, hey, I needed to talk to you for a minute. Mm -hmm. And so that's a core of prep, the top targets. And the rest says as you're mingling and you're going through the crowd, you get referred to different people and conversations one lead to another. And uh, so... That's that's how we make sure there is a return on investment because right. networking takes energy. Right. It's a, okay, so I think that's a really interesting 
piece of advice to to for people to understand um but it does take some sort of courage doesn't it <clears throat> because yeah. again when we've talked about rejection how do you do <laughs> how, are you any good at rejection i'm, I'm sure uh Bernie's got a lot of experience in rejection, but are you, are you, are you any, what about rejection? Because one of the big stresses that the many of startups that we work with, um, suffer from and suffer to a great extent, to, to the extent of really affecting their, their mental health is this constant rejection. So one's been so excited about what you're creating and so believes it's going, is irresistible, but they can't get it over. How do you deal with that? Any, again, advice, experience. When's the worst part? What's the worst rejection? What's the worst rejection? I've had so many of it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll give you the answer to the question. I think the, where, where I learned, um, that's, it's okay to not get what you want and lose is through sports. I used to play basketball professionally and you work really hard. You want to win, but you don't always win, right? right? And as you're losing, you start building this mentality of, oh, I got to practice harder for the next game. And that's, I think, where I fundamentally understood, yes, failure is part of life and it happens and you have to just learn how to learn from it and get better. But when we, when I started Onsite IQ, the first task I had was to run a customer discovery. Right. Go and see what the problem is that you need to solve. And I had to reach out cold to the most of the people out there that I wanted to talk to. So you send these emails out and you have this title of PhD, but people don't respond. And then you've got a little bit of egos like, why doesn't he respond? Because you're a, you're a nobody, right? Uh, and then it becomes a numbers game. There's a conversion rate. Hey, you send 10 emails, you get two responses, you set up one meeting. And then the moment you start understanding what the math is behind it, you say, hey, you know what? I'm expecting 80% rejection. It's not, it's nothing against me. This is how the numbers work. Uh, and the same thing with fundraising. Now, there are different ways that you can get rejected and there are people who just haven't have an empathy they just decline they don't talk to you or they tell you hey you know what this is not the right fit for us yeah. and there are people who personally for some reason want to want to hurt you and i never <laughs> forget this it was one of the early stage investors that we were talking to and they just disagreed with the thesis that we had at the time and that's completely fine but she personally went one level above that and told me on the phone, and I never forget this, said, you're, what you're doing is wrong and you're going to fail. Mm. And there is, there is no reason because, I mean, you know, statistically startups going to fail, right? 90% chance. So someone with that much hope and optimism trying to build something, you go and just crush them by telling them you're going to fail. I don't think it's productive. I don't know, but that isn't productive, but that is real. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons. Sometimes people have had a bad day and sometimes people think they're helping you by wasting your time. Have you been told, Bernie, that you're going to fail? I've never had anybody be quite that cruel. That is, that's unnecessary and that's cruel. But, uh, let, but, let me, I'm just going to interrupt you. Yeah. Have you ever failed at an exam? Um, 
No, I was thinking. It doesn't look. The, uh, if you have to think, you know, I, if you ask me that question, it would take me a, man, a very small. I'm, I'm a big believer in uh, it's it's not over until it's over and it's not over until I but, say it's over. Yeah. And so if I'm in the middle of failing, I find a way to shift gears um, fix whatever's wrong with the, with whatever I'm working on. And I've, I, I, I don't like to think of, of things that I've really failed at, to be honest. Right. I find a way of shifting gears of, of making things work ultimately. Okay. So, and it's I, a question of what your, what your event horizon, as we say, is when is it over? When is, where, where does the, where the thing end? I, I don't understand event horizon. Can you explain? Event that? horizon is, is where, where's the end point? Um, there's a, a Winston Churchill. Had he, had he died when he was 50 would have been considered by most people a failure, but his event horizon was much later in his life than that. His end date was much later in his life and all the things he did, he did right. much later in his life. Okay. So thank goodness I'm at this age now. <laughs> there you, there you go, sir Winston. There you go. <laughs> okay. All right. I mean, again, the reason why I'm focusing on this, you know, you mentioned 90% of uh, startups fail. Uh, you know, there is really good data that's talking about more like 97%, but it goes, what's failure? I mean, is failure when you're still going and not earning? Is failure when you're earning a little bit or is failure, you know, so we don't know, but we'll, we'll, we'll stay on 90%. And so therefore, out of every 10 startups, only one will succeed. It's a very small amount. And again, we, want to from this podcast get from you, you from all our, our, our great guests ideas of how to manage manage that that failure but let's talk about money well i want to say so, uh, what you're talking about with money and failure there let me give you an example okay. of how of how failure looks like failure but only in the moment and not as you go along one of uh, um long before i was involved with the the group i'm currently involved with um, the hotel group, I had worked on a hotel, um, uh, a hotel project here in New York City. And we built this wonderful hotel downtown. And it was, uh, we had it appraised before we opened it at $130 million. Three months after we opened, we had it reappraised at $80 million. It's a big difference, right? Partic and, and it was very difficult. And it, what happened in between was the Great Recession of 08. Yeah. We uh, wound up, um, the people who were the head of that group, it wasn't me, wound up giving the keys back to the hotel. And we all looked at that as a failure and we all went home. When I went to start my, my real estate company, I went to those people who had took, taken back the keys, the people who had foreclosed on us and said, would you be willing to invest with us? And they said, absolutely. You handled, they said to me, you handled the, um, uh, the, the 08 recession with honesty to us transparency to us and you're the kind of per person we want to be partners with so, and so the original failure became yeah, the kickstarter I, for my new company you used the word we and that that word suggests that it wasn't just you by yourself it's which is never just one, yeah, one person yeah but it but it can be it can be there are many many people working from their their bedrooms or, or dining room tables who are by themselves so again, I mean, we'll move on from this a bit, but it really, really is the, you know, advice about how to, you know, that we, we're looking for. And I think you're giving us some really, really good pointers in that, that direction, but it's hard. 
Anything to add? You look like you want to say something. Um, yeah, if I had to give one advice, yeah. don't start a company alone. How about that? Just very interesting, very interesting, and great don't, advice. But don't start a company alone. Um, again, the interesting thing is that, and I don't have the the proper data on this, that most companies start alone. Could we agree that you might be able to start alone, but don't stay alone too long? I think the point that I'm trying to get at is I'm, and I'm laboring it too long, is the fact that somebody has to have an idea. Two people don't work with, you know, one gets, wakes up and has the idea and then discusses it with the other. And then you have a partnership. I want to talk about partnerships. I want to talk about, again, another, when working with so many startups, another pain point is the fact that somebody has an idea, shares it with somebody, uh, who is fascinated and interested or may have some skills that can add to that idea. And then you have a, I would call it a, a romance, a, a startup romance. They both creating this baby. They're, mm-hmm. they're in love with each other. And one may have sort of commercial experience and others may have, you know, technology and it's so exciting. But what does happen, and I'm interested to hear, if I'll start with you, Bernie, I'm interested to know is that in many, many cases that it is fantastic without the two of them together, it would, or three of them or whatever, it would never get off the ground. But once it gets off the ground and grows, other people are employed, other other work needs to be done. Who's going to go to these conferences? You know, I keep going to them all. Why don't you go to some of the conferences? I'm doing all the selling. Tell, can you tell me about your story about partners and, and, and as a startup, any, you know, lessons or good news or whatever? Certainly. Um, uh, it is one of the most important things. It's like building a house and having a good foundation is it makes the whole difference between whether the, the the company as it grows bigger will stand or whether it will topple over because it has a bad foundation. Um, uh, I can speak for me um, certainly with um, um, uh, my experience, and I've I've had a lot of partners in my life, and uh, one of my go-to statements is no good business comes from bad partners, whether it's the actual partner in your business. So I just want to repeat that. No good business comes from bad partners. 100%. I can't tell you how important that is. Um, there are, I've seen people try and put together deals with people that, and I would, I would listen to what they were saying. They're saying, oh, no, it's a great company. Yeah, my partner's a little strange. Yeah, my partner's a little difficult. Yeah, he's, he's a little fast and but loose. Your partner in those cases yeah. often weren't difficult, but become difficult become, for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes they become difficult. So what do you do? Divorcing a partner is, 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 I've never gone through a, a marital divorce, but divorcing a partner is just brutal. Absolutely. I can't, uh, I've, I've gone through it a few times with some early businesses and, um, it's emotionally upsetting. It's, um, financially, um, often difficult to put together. And it, uh, and a lot of times think about it. It's not just you and the partner that are causing trouble for, but all the people you've hired, right? You've got a business. Uh, if you want to talk about over time where things get strange, uh, one of the big issues is you feel, I feel a lot of people feel responsible for all the people that they all of a sudden on Monday, they've got a job. And if this place falls apart because my partner and I can't get along, all these people are out of a job, having done nothing wrong, nothing bad. What about partners with you? 
Um, with startup, it could be a little bit different. So um, I started the, co- the company alone, and then my co-founder joined almost, I think, a year and a half later. And the thing about startups, if they're not part of the 90% that fail, once they grow, they grow exponentially fast. And it's very difficult to have partners that can grow as fast as the company. So people who took you from point A to B, they're not necessarily the same people who are going to take you from point B to C, right? Because early on, you need to be scrappy. You need to be building things because the team is three, five, ten people. But then when you get to 100, 200, 300 people, you need experienced managers, team builders, leaders, just a completely different set of skills. So, um, I, I, I can't give you the answer because I'm not experienced enough yet, but there could be a partnership that starts and there are people who have seen the whole gamut. They know how to start a company with a team of three and scale it to a thousand and do it over again. Well, well, the only thing I, I can tell you from, from my experience and my experience is experience to say of all the many, many, um, I've been very lucky to, to be able to talk to so many startups, it's actually being brave. I mean, people will tell you in their mar- marriages or, or, you know, when they've lived together with a partner for many years, breaking up is hard to do. You know, burst into song now, can't I? But, but breaking up is hard to do. But when, when we take this 90% of failures, I couldn't give you a percentage, but I can tell you from my experience, a lot of these um, startup companies that fail is due to the fact of the breakdown of a partnership. And it's a, because that somebody doesn't take responsibility for the breaking of it up. Uh, and I don't know if you've got any experience about it, but it is hard and sort of, and, and, and sometimes it, it's mentally terrible that people go through and there's bullying and, and, and jealousy and all sorts. It is about saying this doesn't work. Let me think about how I can break up and mm-hmm. still do it. I think, I think that's right. Uh, uh, yeah. It's a hundred percent right. Uh, I think one thing to add to what you're saying, Larry, and what, what you're saying, Ardalan is, is, um, I can tell you that when, when I started, um, with my partners, uh, my, my current, the hotel company, um, uh, we sat down early on and decided what we wanted this company to look at. We used to, we had from day one what we called the 40 year plan. This was not going to be a company. We're going to put it together. We're going to see where it goes. Now, what does it mean to really have a company that's going to be here? That's almost going to, in, in my case, outlive me, right? And what does that, what does that mean to have a, a, a company? I think that's part because, uh, all of us who started this company were people who had already been through business before and had started other companies and things of that nature. But I think that to the extent that you can do it, and sometimes it's hard to do, particularly when you haven't gone through a business before, to think about what this company will look like five, ten years from now. And tw- in our case, more than five or ten years is important. And we actually, you have to nurture it like a marriage. Larry. And we would go every quarter, we would go and have a a retreat where we would talk about where is our company now? Where is it going to be? Where do we want it to be? Five five and 10 years from now. Okay. So that's a very positive thing, this retreat. It's quite hard to do and manage in actual fact, but so, but it it, it becomes an important part of your life. And so you find a way to do it. Yeah. So anything that 
allows you to be able to talk to each other in, a, in an environment that can actually sort things out. So again, you know, for the people out there, you know, go and look in the mirror if you're very miserable at the moment and tell the mirror, you don't need to be irresistible. You need to do something about it. And you can, even though you have to accept it's going to be painful in the short term. Amen. I see you know, a professor or somebody with a PhD uh, in your field. What do you think your your annual income would be now? I always ask my my guests this. Probably more than what I'm making right now. Uh, but right out of the gate would have been a huge difference being working at a at a consulting firm and then fast can, forward today. Can you have a figure? I don't know, a couple hundred thousand dollars probably in the 200s and then it goes as you're earning right. your partnership, it goes up. So so how long is it since you've, since you've been doing the startups? And uh... I started thinking about it in 2016. So how many years haven't you been earning the 200 that you could have been earning? I'm still not. Right. And how, many, <laughs> how, how many years is that now? Uh, a good six years. So we're talking about six years. If you said at 200, it would be 1.2 million, but of course you'd be earning double that in the latter part. So can we agree on about 1.5, 1.6 million? Yeah, sure. And can we agree that you've had six years of no paid holiday vacations? Yeah, that was brutal. Uh, so let, let's add some more onto that and say <laughs> on top of that medical care, you've had no paid medical care? No. Right. So <laughs> I, I, I would be able to get that well over $2 million. <laughs> I don't know, is it worth it? You've given up $2 million. You're sitting here and your $2 million, you know, maybe you can take some off <laughs> yeah. or add some on. Is it worth it? What What makes you keep going? Yeah. Uh, good point. One thing I, I learned very early on, it's not worth going through this if your number one motivator is money. It's just not enough. Oh, we're talking about yes. my oh, wow. my girlfriend in the residency, right? There is no amount of money that justifies what they're going through. It's just you have as to, a doctor. She's a doctor. as a doctor, as a yeah, medical doctor. She yeah, it's you're doing it because the for me, I love the thrill. I just love the roller coaster ride. Right. It just keeps me alive. Okay, and so that's personal to me. And this won't be the last startup. Um, however, this one ends, I'm going to do it again and again and again. And that's how I, I feel like I need this in my life to keep me happy, motivated, challenged enough to stay sane. And from the non-personal perspective, I think there's something rewarding in changing an industry for better. Sure, I absolutely agree. And on that note, on that note, we're probably going too far back. For <laughs> you, we can... Well, you've always been earning money, haven't you? Because you actually was a lawyer and did something at the same time. And, uh, I... So you haven't really seen uh, uh, the, difference, the difference <laughs> should be, uh, the difference should be, um, uh, uh, as you pointed out, um, uh, uh, sort of the stability of your income and the constant growth as opposed to the tremendous fluctuations but just i think i think the the, the analogy that Artelin made to uh, being a doctor is is dead on uh, 
I think that uh, if it's what if it's what excites you and if it's what makes you uh, interested, no amount of money makes the difference. You, we could all sit behind the desk at yet another um, call it a law firm, call it a consulting firm, call it whatever it is you want, and you could do totally fine. And at some point, you'll just say, "Oh my God, why am I here?" And uh, you know, there's the whole "you only live once." And uh, and if you're lucky enough to figure out what it is that makes you excited in the business world, um, uh, and in your case, Ardalan, not just the business world, but wanting to be a disruptor and make your mark on the world, and the world will be different, the world of construction um, management, that small part of the universe will be different, big part of the universe will be different, because you changed it, and yeah. nothing nothing compares to that. No, that, that is, is, is really great. Mm-hmm. And if you do that and you truly create value and achieve that improving an industry or changing an industry for better, money is the byproduct. You'll be rewarded for it uh, by amounts that no full-time job will be yeah. able to comp- compensate you. And for some people, being your own boss is also part of it. Yeah. Right? You could work at a, at, a, at a company and you may even be a managing director or a partner or whatever it is at that company. But it's never yours. yours. And this is and this is something that's yours. Yeah. But in fairness to lots of people, then they don't particularly want that responsibility. That's but, right. But startups do. That's and right. That, and that's what... The, and you need to... Uh, uh, the first thing of of going into... One of the first things of going into business is knowing who you, you yourself are. Yeah. You need to know, as you say, Larry, what's the problem out there that you're trying to solve. Absolutely. But you also need to look deep into yourself and say, who am I and is this the kind of thing I want to do with my life? It would be really, really helpful if you could give some irresistible advice on on presentation, on fundraising, attitudes towards fundraising, uh, and anything around that subject, because that's the part that is really, really causing huge, huge stress, pressure, etc. So, you know, tell us, Adelan, secrets. How do you, how? What's the best suggestions that we can give people on the startup side? At early stages, you're selling a dream and fundraising is quite frankly sales you're just selling why just say quite frankly like you're making that sound that sales is just something now and again i will take you to task on this because i always do fun and especially actually the more academic people are the more they fail at this because sales is not you know no no Bodies, you know, don't think your father and mother would call all the friends, say, you know, Ardenland's become a salesman. <laughs> you know, I like they would say is that Ardenland's got a, a PhD, but the salespeople are the ones yeah. that are often working. And it's the major reason why people don't succeed. Yes. So I'm just taking it to task on that because it's a sales bit. And that question is aimed as saying, how have you sold? But I've used to try to avoid the S word, but this is the essence of being yeah, successful. It, it, in a lot of things in so gro- growing use up. Use the word. Come on, say it. Sales. Tell us how to say it. Say it. Sales. Good. 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 Own it. Own it. Um, it's in, especially for me growing up in a, in an Iranian family, it was all about go get educated and become an engineer or a doctor. And it was frowned upon to sell. And it was. I don't think it's just an Iranian thing. I think you would talk about middle upper class, you yeah. know, Americans, English, you know, Europeans. It's the same <laughs> globally. That's why people like me 
managed to make have some success because I yeah. really didn't have that. You were all doing PhDs and I was selling. <laughs> you were selling. Yeah. <laughs> so um, like, fundraising is sales. You're selling your vision, your dream. You're selling an opportunity to investors. Early on, and I didn't know that, you can come off as desperate when you're fundraising if you don't know that you're selling an opportunity to invest. Because the other side of the table, let's say I'm talking to Bernie, Bernie has $500 million sitting there. He has to find an opportunity to invest. Now, if I present a good opportunity, he would love to give his money to me. Yeah. But if I'm begging for money, it's like, ah, uh, yeah, I don't trust this guy, right? Right. So uh, that's, that's the most important thing to keep in mind. Now, at earliest stage, stages, you don't have much to prove. There are no numbers. It's you and it's a market opportunity and how good your story is. It's, they're intangible. That's why they say seed angel stage investment super early on pre-revenue is more art than science. And then as the company matures and now you have revenue, you have PNL, you have numbers, it becomes more and more science and what's your Metrics and efficiency, CAC payback. There's so many metrics that uh, you can track. So we started with smaller checks. Um, to this day, the company has raised $22 million in total. We Very started good. with Very a $50,000 check. And Excellent. then you went up to a couple hundred thousand dollars and then $5 million, $10 million. Yeah, brilliant. That and must have been very exciting for you. It, it, it's validating that someone believes in the idea as much as you and they're, they're willing to put the money where their yeah. mouth is. Yeah. And it's and more so than validating of the idea. It's, uh, uh, in fairness to you, I think you've also turned what was just an idea into something that you can now say it exists in the real world. Yeah. Here it is. Look how we do it. Look how it's important. Look how it's helpful. And so it's not, it's no longer. In the beginning, you were selling the idea. Now you're selling the idea plus the execution of yes. that idea, showing that you can execute on it, which is very Absolutely. important. So, so you're an investor in companies. What, yeah. what, what, what do you look at in the presentation? So, um, I can't begin to tell you how important, um, how much fundraising I agree with Ardalan, how, how, how much fundraising is sales. I get people who give me, uh, uh, often, uh, somebody's sales. Uh, for what they're, to, when they're raising fund, they, they put it down into a book. We call it a deck. So I'll get a deck and that deck will either be coherent, well thought out, well presented, um, uh, uh with a lot of background, you know, uh, not a, not a startup deck. A, a real estate company is often, you know, you have comparables out there in the world, things of that nature. And there are people out there who just don't do a good job of it. Number one. Um, uh, so the amount of time sorry, that sorry, I spent, sure, sorry, sure. Out of 10, how many people are doing a good job? Three. Okay. Three. Okay. Um, and then uh, the rest of the seven are on some sort of spectrum of, of really, really bad where, oh my gosh, this is a good idea, but they've done such a poor job of presenting it that I don't even want to be partners with these people. Very interesting. Yeah. And some people who do a great job, but don't have, uh, but do it sort of in a, um, a, a non, 
uh, a way that doesn't have a lot of background information. And so those are people who I, I don't know if I can trust or not trust because where's the background? Where are so the comparables? So when you talk about background information, we're talking about data. Data, hard yeah. data, yeah. which in a, in a real estate company you can do in a startup business at the very beginning, it's hard. At the stage that Artelin is at now, he can provide data, yeah. hard data. I think that, um, uh, um, uh, the amount of time that uh, when when I fundraise on a deal for myself, the amount of time that we spend on a deck is enormous. And right. um, and then that's phase one. Phase two is something that we had talked about a little bit earlier when you go into these networking events. it's uh, We started to talk about, didn't do a lot, is doing your homework. A deck that I might yeah. present to you is different, uh, Larry, is a deck, different than a deck I might present to Ardalyn. Why? Because I've done background research on on you, Larry, and see the sort of deals you've invested in, what it is you care about. Do you care more about uh, return on, on investment long term? Do you care about yearly cash on cash? What are the things that sort of excite you and get you interested in the deal? And I will I'll never change the under underlying information because facts are facts are facts, but I will change I might change the way I present it so that it's more attractive to you, more irresistible to you, and might make a different deck that's more irresistible to you, Ardlin. It is crazy, isn't it, to think that all these people out there with these wonderful ideas and science and just fantastic, irresistible ideas, they mess it up. Correct. Because they don't do this sales marketing bit, you know, and or don't the homework. Know, and, and the homework or, and one of the things that I, I can call it, I'm going to call it uh, DAT now, I think, deck avoidance tactics, is that, again, a lot of startups saying, I want to get the science ready. I want to get the product ready before I go out for it. But really, the deck should be your, 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 your guidebook. Right. Okay, so we are coming to the end of our program today. And the program, as, you, as I hope everybody can hear or see, is a program that's to give you the ideas and think about things. We want to cut down that 90% failure rate to much lower. And it can be. Don't the people out there, you know, the hard thing is when I speak to them, they say it's the loneliness, the loneliness of the long distance startup. You know, they are by themselves. So again, you know, we hope that our podcast's and other podcasts help. And we look forward to joining you all again. And hopefully you two will come back and give us some more brilliant advice. And we wish you an irresistible future and an irresistible, you know, successful business ahead of times. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to The Irresistible Entrepreneur. We hope you've enjoyed hearing from our fantastic guests and found our conversation thought-provoking. 